The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. We would turn to James chapter 4. That's where our lesson will be found this evening, James chapter 4. I think that we can all agree that we are a people as human beings who plan. This is an everyday part of our lives. We're making plans, whether it's distant plans or plans in the near future, we plan, whether it's a matter of our retirement financially or whether it's a matter for dinner when we leave this place, we make plans. And life is really too full of important things to not be planners. There's not very many people who are successful in any sense of the word who wake up each day and wing it, so to speak. Those who are successful have their ducks in a row, if you will. They are individuals who weigh their options and consider circumstances and what consequences to actions may be, and they seek to anticipate as best as they can, and they make their decisions according to the wisdom they've gained by experience or from advice given by others who have more experience or more wisdom or knowledge on any given topic. We plan, plan, and plan. Much of the technology these days is geared towards that kind of planning. We have calendars on our phones that we can set reminders with. We have apps that help us plan for things like dieting or budgeting. We have planning tools for pretty much everything. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that we would all find someone who we look up to in our lives that would encourage some form of planning. It's important so that we can be successful, so that we know what we're doing and where we're going and how we're going to do what we're going to do, and we have a plan. There's a lot of important things about that. Our careers, our spouses, our families, our finances, our education, the list is endless. But what I want to talk about tonight is life planning in our lives as Christians. And what that's going to look like is drastically different than a worldly person and how they plan. We would make decisions or would decide not to do something that might would blow the minds of those in the world. Why wouldn't you do that? Or why would you do that? And it has to do with our relationship with God. We're willing to to do things that may be unheard of from those in the world, or we sacrifice doing other matters that would be unheard of to give up such an opportunity by those in the world. And it's something they really can't wrap their heads, their minds around. But we as Christians should be comfortable with that concept and approach to life planning, that the Lord is at the center of our plans. And we should understand and acknowledge, much like we studied from Hebrews 11 this morning with regard to Abraham and his family accepting and confessing that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, we should accept and confess that our life is going to be planned a whole lot differently than the plans that people in the world make. James deals with that in chapter 4 of his epistle, and he really deals with it in the negative, what some people there he was addressing as Christians were doing that indicated they were not planning with God in mind. They were not planning in the way a Christian should plan. In verse 13 of James 4, James writes, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, 
spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this, shall live to do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. I want to consider this text this evening. First, understanding its context. James, we are very familiar with, is a book which seems to jump from topic to topic. And it is assorted with regard to its practical wisdom. And that's how we describe it from time to time. The New Testament book of Proverbs, if you will. And we know how Proverbs works. There's some themes in Proverbs. There's a couple of chapters that in bulk go together. But for the most part, Proverbs really jumps from one-liner to one-liner. Here's some wisdom uttered by Solomon, wisdom uttered by the Holy Spirit. This is what you should do in this matter. This is what you shouldn't do in this matter. And it just goes from topic to topic. James seems to be similar to that. But I would also suggest to you that James is written with a common theme in mind. In James chapter 1, he mentions trials and the testing of faith and the way that an individual would be able to endure trials and therefore grow in maturity in their endurance in faith would be to ask God for wisdom. And he progressed in chapter 1, as we're familiar with, to talk about God's Word. And that's the wisdom that God will give us in His Word. So we need to be swift to hear that Word, slow to speak and slow to wrath. We need to be willing to accept God's Word and receive it with meekness, that disposition which accepts it and does what it says without question, disputing or resisting. And so we must be doers of the Word and not hearers only, practicing pure and undefiled religion. We are active in our faith, which is what chapter 2 is about. You don't hold that faith with partiality because an individual who shows partiality may claim to be doers of the royal law, loving neighbor as self. But when they show partiality, they actually transgress that law. And he kind of springboards off of that into faith and works. Faith that is perfect or complete is a faith that doesn't just do part of what the faith tells us to do, the word of God, but is a doer of the entire word. God said, don't commit adultery and God said, don't murder And so faith that is complete does not just refrain from the one and do the other. It refrains from both. And that has to do with negative and positive commands. Chapter three has a lot to do with God's word as well, where teachers are given a warning in regard to their speech, that they're individuals who will speak more. And so their judgment will be greater. The New King James Version says stricter. It's just simply saying the sphere of their judgment will be greater because while your words, you will be. Uh, condemned or, or justified. The more we speak, the more we have to be judged on. And that's what James is warning about. The tongue has great potential for evil. And so make sure as a teacher that you are familiar with and, and associated with the wisdom that is from above, not from the earth. Some were fancying themselves teachers of God's word, but like in First Timothy chapter 1, they didn't even know what they were talking about. They had earthly wisdom and that doesn't cause peace. It causes strife. That certainly doesn't edify, but it damages, it tears down. And I think what he does in chapter 4 is he kind of springboards off of that discussion of wisdom. There's wisdom from the earth and there's wisdom from beneath. And evidently, the majority of James's audience were characterized by worldly wisdom. That's why they had fights and wars and contentions among themselves. They were adulterers and adulteresses because they were friends with the world. They had their mindset on worldly things and not on spiritual things. It caused a rift between their relationships together and between the relationship 
with God. They were at enmity with God. He calls them to repentance. Another problem that was discussed in verses 11 through 12 is the fact that they were judging wrongly. They were judging not by the standard of God's word, but they put themselves in the seat as a judge. And what that indicates is they were not judging with righteous judgment, not from a heavenly standard. They were making judgments and speaking evil about each other based on things that God did not make any judgments on. And they were condemned in that action. And he follows this idea of really what we see, I think, in the first four chapters, which has a lot to do with the general concept of our lives being shaped and molded and directed by God's word. It's a practical book for a reason. God's word is meant to be heard and acted on. And these are some various ways that we certainly should be acting or shouldn't be acting. And planning has a lot to do with the way a Christian lives. And he addresses a certain situation that evidently was a problem among his readers where individuals were making plans to go to a city and to buy and sell and make a profit and In that, they were showing their attitude, which was erring, according to God. They were called arrogant, they were boasting, and they were omitting to do, or omitting God's God's word, failing to do what God had positively commanded in some ways. And I want us to consider the way that a Christian should make plans, whether it is on a, a schedule, on a calendar, where we're actually planning however many days ahead from now I'm going to do this and do this and do this in this way, or just the general concept of life. How am I going to raise my children? How am I going to treat my spouse? How am I going to be as an employee at work? What are my plans in regard to my character? Who do I want to be? How do I want to act? We should make plans ultimately with God in mind. Consider the problem here. I don't think the problem is planning, as we mentioned before. He's not saying if you make plans to go to such and such a city and buy and sell and make a profit that you're sinning in doing so. It's quite obvious that the mindset behind that and the attitude that is exposed here by James is the problem. We can make plans to make a profit. We can make plans to go somewhere to make a profit. The problem was that they were presuming they had tomorrow. They had an arrogance about them. Planning was not the problem. In Romans 1 and verse 13, Paul mentioned that he made plans. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 5, likewise, he tells them, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. Plans are part of our human existence. And you know, Jesus understood that, and he used that to show the importance of planning to those who thought they were his disciples, and they were following him in his ministry. And he stopped while they were following him at one point in time and and talked to them about the cost of discipleship and essentially encouraged them to plan. In Luke 14, 28, Jesus said, Which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Obviously, a figure for illustration uh, regarding the spiritual principles of counting the cost of discipleship. 
Do you have enough? Are you motivated enough? Are you willing to put all of your life into following me? If not, stop, is what he's saying. Count the cost. So planning is certainly not the problem. God actually would expect us to plan. God wants us to live as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And and that's not just we come together and worship, but we as the church are members individually, which means we're going to be doing things individually that the church as a collective can't do. And that's essentially living each and every one of our individual lives. We've got to plan for that. God expects us to live in such a way that would be pleasing to him according to his will. So we've got to be able to make plans. But the problem was with those people being presumptuous in their planning. They showed an attitude which manifested their thoughts that they had tomorrow as a certainty. You think about it. He says, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Not just the next day, a year. That's how presumptuous they were. We have modern transportation. We could fly across the country and be back the next day. They could not. If they were going to make a trip of sorts, they would have to plan into the distant future. And it wasn't wrong of them to do that period. It's certainly wrong of them to have such arrogance in presuming that tomorrow was a certainty, to speak with such confidence about their plans as if they were in control, when in reality they weren't. Verse 14, we read of the actual problem. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. They thought they did. They thought it was certain. They thought it was good. And they're planning, leaving out what we'll see in verse 17. God's will indicated how arrogant they were. Fact is, we just don't know about tomorrow. Proverbs 27 and verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. We should heed the psalmist as he says in Psalm 90 and verse 9, All our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength, they are 80 years. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. I think one of the songs we sing um, fairly often in this congregation uses that concept of Soon it is cut off and we fly away. At the last we fly away. Our lives just fly away. They're, they're gone. We don't know how long we have to live. And even if we could know exactly the number of our days that we have to spend on this earth, really, it's so fleeting. It's so insignificant in regard to eternity. Instead of making plans and thinking that we actually have tomorrow or the next day or week or month or year, we should realize the importance of considering the brevity of life. The psalmist in Psalm 39 asked God for that kind of wisdom when he said in verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths and my age is as as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but a vapor. Surely every man walks about like a shadow Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. Our days are as handbreadths. We don't know how long our life is. At best, he says, it's but a vapor, much like James says in verse 14. It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes 
away. It is presumptuous to think that we have tomorrow as a certainty. We can't take tomorrow for granted. We only know the time that we currently find ourselves living. That's the problem, being arrogant in that presumptuous living. And then James gives some instructions to avoid that. What do you do to to avoid taking tomorrow for granted? When we make plans, we make plans not based on, okay, at this day, two weeks from now, the world's going to end or my life is going to end. No one plans like that because no one knows. And so we, we kind of take tomorrow for granted all the time. But the Christian, while making those plans, knowing that it might come, always understands, always knows that even if I'm doing this, even if I'm making these plans, I may be signing a contract to start a job or to do something, go to an event at this particular date. But when I do that, I understand that doesn't mean I'll make it there. That doesn't mean I should just drop everything. That doesn't mean I should stop living until that time. It doesn't mean I should really change anything about my life because I don't know how much time I actually have. What James instructs is instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live to do this and that. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul said several times in his ministry. We actually read about it in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 7 when he mentioned the plans he had. He said, I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits, if the Lord wills. He's in control, not me. I'll make the plans, but things may change. And in fact, those plans that he mentioned in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians are seen to change in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And they actually had the audacity to claim that he was being duplicitous and unfair and dishonest with them, that he made these plans always intending to change them. And what Paul said is basically, yeah, I intended to come to you, but things change. I'm not in control of this. It obviously wasn't the Lord's will that he made it there at that time. In Acts 18, 21, Paul says, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 19, he says, I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And in chapter 16 and verse 7 again, if the Lord permits. But what we got to understand is that James is not offering us a mindless phrase to utter in every prayer that we pray or in everything that we say to one another. If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. And he's also not saying that it's wrong to say that, but we've got to really understand what that means. And our life needs to exhibit that, bear that out. If the Lord wills is not a Calvinistic utterance of God is either willing or not willing every tiny little event in our lives, that it's all written in a book and it's going to unfold exactly as it's written. That's not what we're saying. I'm afraid that some who claim to be Christians, a lot in the world, think that way. And that's not what we're saying. That's not what James is saying. James is not saying, if the Lord wills, we shall live to do this and that. And and what that means is God has everything planned out for you. So if you're going to go and you actually do go to that city to buy, sell and make a profit, it's only because God wrote it in eternity and, and he's sovereign and everything happens according to his will. And you can't do one thing about it. That's not what he's saying. That is not what scripture reveals to us. It's a mindset and attitude that we are exhibiting and that we put into our planning process in our daily life. That no, we're not in control 
And it doesn't mean that my plans won't actually unfold and come into fruition. But what it does mean is they very well may not. And I don't need to put my trust in that. I don't need to put my trust in myself to, to will things into existence. I don't have that kind of power and to make plans that bears even a hint or semblance of such an attitude is sinful before God. Consider that God is in control and we need to understand that. That's what James is saying. You need to understand that you don't have tomorrow granted, that your life is but a vapor. God's in control. That's how you live your life as a Christian. Gamaliel, who is a highly respected teacher of the law, the one that Paul learned at the feet of in chapter 5 of Acts, spoke concerning the problems they were having, the Sanhedrin was having with Peter and John. They commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They didn't want the trouble that they were bringing on them, really that they brought on themselves. And, and they were wondering, whatever are they going to do? So Gamaliel stood up, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, verse 34, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And, and what he says is absolutely spot on in regard to our understanding of God. Now, he wasn't on the right side of history. He should have been submitting to the gospel. But what he says about God is sound. It says, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theotis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And this, after this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. He applies it. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing, just like with Theodos and Judas. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest even... Uh, you even be found to fight against God. In other words, he understood God's in control. It it doesn't matter what you do. It's either going to happen or it's not going to happen because it's either of God or it's not of God. And that was sound. Jesus even spoke of in his ministry that every tree that is planted that is not planted by God, every plant that is not of God will be uprooted. That's exactly what happened with those two men Gamaliel mentioned. He understood God's in control. That's something we've got to understand as well. And when we understand God's in control, and we also have this understanding about our free will, what we will do is willingly submit to God's control. And that's what this is about too. It's not just, okay, I get God's in control, and I'm going to live my life and make these plans. I understand God's in control, and so I'm going to submit to Him and His will, do what He wants for me to do. Let him direct me, and then all my plans will be molded to that. Because it's not I who live, as Paul said, Galatians 2.20, but Christ lives in me as a Christian. Yes, God's in control. But the only control that he has in his church, his body, is through his body submitting willingly to his will. Collectively and individually. So God's in control, and I'm willing to be under God's control. In Psalm 119 and verse 105, the psalmist said, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And in verse 133, he says, Direct my steps by your word. and Let no iniquity have dominion over me. We've got to understand the danger of thinking presumptuously in this regard because it doesn't stop at simply thinking your plans will come through. 
when you think you're in control and, and we convince ourselves that we're in control or we, we just have this fleeting thought that indicates we have a feeling that we're in control, that, that tomorrow is granted and these plans will happen no matter what, that gives us a confidence that's false. And presumptuous thought leads to insubordination before God. Consider the false apostles or false prophets, false teachers of Second Peter two, when in verse ten, in describing them, Peter says they are presumptuous, self-willed. When we think we're in control, we don't submit to God. We do what we want to do. We think we have tomorrow. Why would I obey God now when I can do it later? I have tomorrow. I'm going to do what I want to do. That is a recipe for disaster. And what James goes on to say is that that presumptuous mindset and action is evidence of arrogance. And it in and of itself is a boast before God and against God. The person who lives their life by taking tomorrow for granted and leaving God out of his plans is presumptuous, but he's also arrogant and boastful. The Greek word translated into arrogance is telling. It's a Greek word which means braggadocio or self-confidence. And it's showing the folly of this individual who thinks they're in control and can make these plans without God in the picture. That somehow he has something substantive within himself to give himself what he needs to lead life successfully. In his commentary on James, Daniel H. King Sr. says that the Greek word he uses finds its origin in the characteristic of a wandering quack, not unlike the medicine man during the frontier days in America, who offered cures which were not really cures at all. Thus he boasted that he could perform feats which he was really unable to do. That's the man of James chapter 4 and verses 13 through 17. Strong goes on to give some comments on the word. He says it is an insolent and empty assurance which trusts in its own power and resources and shamefully despises and violates divine laws and human rights. He says it's an impious and empty presumption which trusts in the stability of earthly things. Trusting in yourself to the degree of not following God's will, but your own will, and thinking that you have some kind of stability, foundation to build your life upon in regard to these things. In other words, the man of James chapter 4 and verses 13 through 17 is strikingly similar to the rich fool that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 12. The people who make these kinds of plans without thinking about what God wants or what could happen in the future and understanding in humility they're not in control are doing the exact same thing that this rich fool does in Luke 12. Verse 16, Jesus said, "...the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully." And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He arrogantly trusted and his own abilities to provide for his future. And when he thought that that's exactly what he'd accomplished, he came to the realization that his true future, the eternal future, 
the future that actually existed because the future he planned for evidently didn't exist. Tonight, your soul is required of you was not planned for at all. The future he thought of was taken away completely. And in an instant, he realized he truly had no power. The point is, don't trust in riches, trust in God. Don't trust in the earthly realm, trust in God's word and the spiritual realm. If you're going to provide for your future, if you're going to plan for your future in its truest and most substantive sense, it is only done through obedience and faith to God. That's the only thing that is certain. Anything else is presumptuous and it's arrogant and is a sign of boasting against God. And what it leads to, as James indicates, is negligence. In verse 17, he says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. This is one of those verses which sometimes may seem to be out of place, but you think about that context, it fits in perfectly. This man's not thinking about God and His will. He's thinking about making some money. And he makes those plans with the confidence that is unfounded, is not true, that he will have tomorrow. He doesn't consider that his life may be brought to its reckoning that very night, like with the rich fool of Luke chapter 12 and verses 16 through 21. He goes on and makes his plans. He carries on from day to day as long as the Lord gives him breath. And without thinking about God's will, he is making plans which take the place of those opportunities. And he's completely omitting what God has called him to be as a Christian. What we can't do is get caught up in this life to the extent of worrying about all of these matters. Matters which no doubt are important, like our job, like our family's health, like our career and education and so on and so forth. We can't get so caught up in all of that that we forget about, well, what am I supposed to be for God? Because that's what life is all about. That's the only purpose in life is to fear God and keep his commandments. We should realize our purpose in life is should be to serve God and in that mold our plans around that truth that God establishes for us. This is what the Apostle Paul talked about in Colossians 3 and verse 17. He said this, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And I understand that the majority of the time we look at a verse like that, we think about what we should do is find authority for the things that we do before we do them. But doing all in the name of the Lord is not simply first asking, is this thing I intend to do authorized by God and then determining whether I'm going to do it or not. But it's also just taking in all of the positive commands of Christ in his law and doing each and every one of them every time we have the opportunity. Doing all in the name of the Lord involves both sides of that coin. And it looks like this practically in Ephesians 5 and verse 15 The Apostle Paul said, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walking circumspectly, having our head on a swivel, so to speak, always looking around for two reasons. Because we have time that we need to redeem, opportunities that we need to buy up, not to do what we want, but to do God's will. 
but also walking around with our head on a swivel, understanding that the days are evil. There is a power in the air, the prince of the power of the air, Satan. And what he's trying to do is get us to follow his will and go away from God's will. And he is relentless. He will never stop. First Peter chapter five talks about how he is walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so the Christian walks about every day and makes his plans with that in mind. I need to know God's will to know what he would have me to do. And then I need to be looking for those opportunities to do those things. And I also need to be aware of some things that might throw me off the course. Maybe some decisions I would make if I hadn't thought of God's will that would hinder me in following God. Maybe it's not sin, as Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 tells us. Maybe it's the weight which so easily encumbers us. We've got to be willing to do away with both of them. Why is it that some take actions and make decisions that would actually hinder them from doing something God would have for them to do? I think the most obvious application of this in that context is forsaking the assembly. Well, I've got work. I, I just, I've got too much on my plate at, at work. And, and we wonder, well, what is your primary occupation? Aren't you a child of God? Aren't you a Christian? And granted, I'm not talking about things that just come up out of the blue. It's, it's uncharacteristic of your job that you have to work on a Sunday or a Wednesday. None of that. We understand that principle. Your ox is stuck in the ditch, so to speak. But a lot of times and more often than not, those are planned. You chose that job that you knew would keep you from worshiping on Sunday night or on Wednesday night. You chose to work overtime on that day. You chose to do this, or maybe it was a last second thing, but you made no effort whatsoever to try to get someone else to take that load because it's the Lord's day and my brethren are worshiping. That's the negligence in part that James is talking about, that God has has a will for you, something he wants you to do and prioritize. But because you have made planning in this way, you are unable to fulfill that responsibility. And obviously the applications would be endless. Consider a couple of general. The center of all of our planning should be God. It's about priority. It's about setting things in order. That's what we're doing. We're making plans. So if we are children of God, then shouldn't the very first thing be God? He's number one in everything. It doesn't matter what we're planning for. Are we trying to figure out what's best for our family? Whether it's where to live, what school my children will attend, or, or what kind of life are we going to lead? Or what are we going to be busy in? What's going to be our, our form of recreation? Or what spouse am I going to choose to spend my life with? And what am I going to do with my finances? And, and what's my educational route going to be? What school am I going to go to? What's my job going to be? All of these kinds of things. The first thing is God. And that'll drastically change everything. And so you don't plan to go to a school in a part of the country that doesn't have a sound congregation. Because God's number one. I'll go to a school that's a little less impressive and known because there's a congregation there that is sound. And that's my priority. I'll I'll choose a job that pays a little less, that's a little more frustrating because if I'm going to take this job, that means I have to miss every Sunday night or every other Sunday night. 
or maybe every other Sunday. I, I don't have to choose that job. And if God's the priority, then I'm going to choose a job which conforms to that schedule, not you know, change the schedule that's already set in order as a Christian to conform to that job. We don't plan effectively in this regard with worldly wisdom or with our own abilities. We do it by recognizing the preeminence of Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul mentioned in Colossians 1 and verse 15, that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. Preeminence simply means He's number one. He is the CEO of our lives, of everything. He is the top dog. He is the one, therefore, as he applies it in chapter 3 and verse 17, who has all authority and that we need to submit to in everything we say and do. And it doesn't just include what we do as a church, a congregation collectively, but what I do as an individual. We as people are the church. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is within you. And what he indicated in saying that to the Pharisees is that... God rules, Christ's rule is in our heart as individuals. Christ is not our king if he's not making our decisions. Christ is not our king if our life is not molded and transformed and directed all around him at the center. And going back to that application of of something like work or school and, and missing assemblies and other kinds of things in regard to our diligence and dedication to God and Christ. Places like Colossians 3 talk about how Christ is the preeminent one even at our job. That an individual who's a bondservant, he works before a master that may be good or may be evil, but he works before him with integrity, knowing that he does it to God, not to men. But how can you do that to God if you are forsaking a command of God? It's impossible. And there we have the problem and we have the question of why so many times is that something which is an excused absence when the Bible says it shouldn't be. What we got to do is seek his will first. We may be wondering how we're going to to live the next month. We've got to make this extra amount of money. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. And, and I trust in God that He's going to take care of me in that regard. But then we try to show that trust by, by doing more and more, having more and more irons in the fire where we're neglecting what God has told us to do. And that's not showing faith at all. Hebrews 11, as we're studying on Sunday mornings, it talks about faith as trusting in God to such an extent that you don't know what's going to come about with this. But God commanded, so I do. He'll take care of the rest. That's the context of Matthew 6. Don't worry about these things. God knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And secondly, if the center of all planning is God, then we got to understand that the postponing of our spiritual dedication is presumptuous and arrogant and might even add foolish. We cannot think that we have the time to put things off, whether it is obeying the gospel or getting right with God and 
and making sin corrected in your life and repenting of that or, or even just, you know, I'm not doing anything positively wrong. I'm, I'm not really neglecting much as far as positive commands. I'm, I'm there every time the doors are open and, and I'm not living worldly as I leave this place, you know, but I need to start putting more into it. I need to be dedicated, but I'm going to put that off a little longer. There's some things I want to do, some places I need to see, some people I've got to meet, whatever it may be. I've got to get this handled before I can give Christ my all. I can't do it right now, God, but just wait a second. I promise you that it's coming. That's presumptuous and arrogant in and of itself. You know, this is what Felix did in Acts the 24th chapter when the Apostle Paul was there and he was under arrest. After some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who is Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. In other words, it's too much right now. Can't handle that right now. I'll call for you again in a convenient time. And it seems that there's an indication Felix never really had the intention of obeying the gospel. It might have just been in jest that he even called Paul to hear this message. But what we can be certain of as we read verse 27 is that convenient time was non-existent. There is no convenient time. There's time. And that's what God's given us. It says that after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. He ran out of time to call on Paul and hear the gospel. You know, the worst case scenario in postponing that spiritual dedication, the worst case scenario is that our life ends prematurely or the judgment comes. That's the worst case scenario. I'm going to get devoted to God after this year. I've got so much on my plate. I can't faithfully attend. I can't, I can't reach out to those and and preach the gospel to the lost. I, I can't be involved in all of that because I've got to do this, that, and the other. And, and when this year is over, then I will be dedicated to God and your life ends. Well, the judgment comes. You hear that trumpet, it's too late. That's the worst case scenario, and it's a scary one. But perhaps what is even more scary than that is that the best case scenario, it's not really good at all. The best case scenario for you postponing, dedicating your life to God by obeying the gospel or repenting of sins or just being more diligent and reigniting that fire for the Lord, returning to your first love like Paul or Jesus rather calls the Ephesian church in Revelation 2 to do. The best case scenario in postponing that is that you do live to see another day. So God's long suffering continues, but you've hardened your heart. I think that some have this erring thought that as long as they keep showing up, even though they're postponing, they need to do this. They know they need to do that. They know they need to change this. As long as they keep showing up, they've not cast it aside completely. They're still showing up. They're still hearing preaching. They're, they're still singing songs and they're still going through these motions that somehow they're going to eventually get there. But the exact opposite's happening. Every time Pharaoh heard God's words, let my people go, and he refused to do it, even if another opportunity was coming, he was further away from God, not closer to him. That's how it works. Rejecting the gospel, there's nothing positive to that. 
We can't take tomorrow for granted. Some postpone because they want to have a little more fun before dedicating their life to Christ. And some postpone thinking they can straighten some things up before they become a Christian. It would be too hard for me right now. But you know, you can't straighten up your life without the power to straighten up your life, which is in the gospel. It's impossible. It's a fool's errand. We got to remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 1. He says, We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Right now. Right this second. This is the most important day of your life. And if God wills that we live to see tomorrow, tomorrow is the most important day of your life. You've got to take it a day at a time. But what that would indicate is that a day may be the only thing you have left. If today was your last day, are you right with God? What's the plans for your life? Scratch it all and make the new plans to follow God this evening. If you have not obeyed the gospel and you need to do so, we encourage you to do so this evening by coming forward to name the name of Christ before men and to be baptized into His body for the remission of your sins. If there's any other spiritual thing that we can assist you with, the invitation is extended to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.